Can you imagine that? You escape Vietnam and you die from an airline fatality, said Erickson. Clark replied, Never happened, Cherry. You survive Nam. You get to live forever, man. Recognize this quotes movie? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Tom, and with me is... Ragnar. Moglet. Thanks for joining us. Ragnar has joined us for over a dozen movies, not including Mighty Ducks 2. Margaret is joining us for the first time and joins us from the University of Connecticut, where Tom also works. Margaret is currently working on her PhD in English and focused on popular poetry and national identity. Ragnar and Margaret conveniently like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. Walking up to the theaters in 1989, we would have had to choose between Lethal Weapon 2, When Harry Met Sally, Weird Al's UHF, Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Black Rain, and today's movie, Casualties of War. Okay, so Casualties of War, is, it's a true story or based upon a true story. And it is about Michael J. Fox's character, Max Erickson, who is in Vietnam under Sergeant Tony Meserve, who is played by Sean Penn. While on a patrol, Meserve and the other people he's on patrol with, including Clark, um, John C. Riley's character Hatcher, John Linguizamo's character Antonio Diaz, they kidnap a young Vietnamese woman who they take on the patrol um, they eventually, with the exception of Michael J. Fox's character, Erickson, rape and murder her. Erickson tries to, to save her life. He pr- tries to stop them from aggressing on her. However, they, they do rape her and they do kill her. And then in the second half of the movie, we see erickson trying to seek justice for her in this impossible situation ragnar if you had one word to describe casualties of war what would it be tragic what about you margaret upsetting and my word would be compassion it's time for question one just before saving erickson from falling into the Viet Cong tunnel meserve aids another soldier by doing what? Locked in. Locked in. All right, Margaret. Since you locked in second, you go first. What do you have? Put attending to a wound, treating a wound. Okay. And Ragnar, what do you have? Yeah, she's probably right now that I think about it. 
Uh, I would say that he lifts a, a person to get them out of the way of the incoming shelling. Okay. Um, so we'll go with zero points for this, this first question. Uh, it was uh, a man is saying, I've lost my arm, and he gives him a stick and tells him, yes. this is your arm. Uh, there yes, I remember that now. Yeah, yes, that's... because he was refusing to be moved, mm -hmm. and you know he was like, "Where's my arm?" And he's just going crazy. Yes, I remember now. Mm -hmm. That was that really started off the, the set the tone of the film mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So I brought this question forward because I did want to before getting into some of the more serious topics, how the movie sets up these characters, especially Minerve, the uh, Meserve, excuse me, um, the the villain of the piece because he he's set up in a very interesting and i think particular way that i think a lesser movie wouldn't do and i was wondering what you guys thought of how these characters are presented to us you know i felt that this was the strength of the movie that i it didn't really hit me while i was watching the film it hit me hours later um jumping a little bit ahead um the when Michael J. Fox character, Erickson, tries to tell everybody what, what, what happened, uh, he was obviously pushed back upon and someone who told him, wasn't this the guy that saved your life? You know, you're alive now because of him and now you're trying to ruin his life. And at first, you, you know, I took that as a man looked at trying to, you know, keep him quiet and avoid an incident. And that's exactly what they were doing. But I think that Palma is also trying to paint a very deep picture of a of a kid i mean this guy was in his early 20s and he's put into a, a, a hell zone and and we've known throughout all the different wars how people young people lose their minds essentially in these kinds kind of environments and one minute he's saving uh two people in the beginning and then eventually he cracks and does uh the quite the, the complete opposite and goes the, the wrong way so it's just that kind of picture. I, I wouldn't see that deep of a character portrayal in, in this kind of movie in, in, from a lesser director. I would expect more just like an evil person outright. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that assessment. Um, I found it helpful uh, that they, they showed him as like a very heroic kid. Um, I think it's also worth noting like, you can be more than one thing at once um, that and and sometimes the intense type of like risk taking and kind of, um, and adrenaline that you seek um, through something like as intense as wartime, it, it is something that makes you crazy that, that it can actually in some ways be two sides of the same coin. It's not because you can also be heroic, you know, and, and not rape people. So like, obviously, like th these two things don't have to go hand in hand. But to show that these two things really do coexist and one doesn't negate the other um, was important. Um, the only critique I had with how it was set up actually um, was that it makes it seem that the death of his friend, was it, um, I forget his friend's name. It's Brownie. Yeah. Brownie, yes. Um, yeah. Um, is a type of catalyst for his behavior that like that was where he snapped. And I, I kind of would have preferred if there wasn't something that seemed like it corresponded so one on one, like everything is there to make you snap like it's it's the overwhelming sense of this wartime. It's not that now oh they killed that one person or they the the whole house was close to us this one night so now I did it like I, I felt like 
a problem sometimes with narrative is that it necessarily tries to make sense and create a type of cause and effect. Um, and I didn't, I didn't like that I felt like I was getting it a little bit set up for me for him to turn. Um, I kind of wanted him to be heroic and suddenly not. But all in all, I thought it was really useful um, and a really good depiction. Yeah, I like what you said about how you can be both things, you know, and and I think most movies would have chosen to do that with the Erickson character, where he he is brave, but he's also scared or in his own words, cowardly um, for for the film to do that with the essentially the central villain, the, the rapist and the kidnapper. That's that's a hard pitch. And, and you know, at times I'm surprised this movie was made. Like we're gonna we're gonna show the heroic side of the rapist. Uh, so it 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 makes for a very interesting and affecting watch. What did you guys think of Penn in the role? He he kind of apparently was not pleased with the role because of his accent, which I I think is uh, I would agree with. I'm not actually that fond of his accent. However, I love him in the role. I just, you know, <laughs> I didn't like the accent too much. And it was a little hard to hear. Um, I'm not entirely sure what part of the country that's supposed to be from anyway. Um, but what did you guys think of, of him in that role? I thought it was really great in it. I agree with the accent. I really wish, wish I had subtitles because I just, I just didn't know what the heck he was saying a lot of times. Um, so, so there's that, but I, yeah, I thought he was extremely well cast. Um, he just looked so young. I mean, he was so young. Um, and this is me being able to tell I'm getting older when I see these people and think they're so young. But like um, just that type of like youthful, like golden boy image that he had combined with this type of like salt of the earth um, kind of portrayal, I felt that really, really worked well for him. Um, and that he was incredibly likable and then he wasn't but he could be incredibly likable um when he wanted to be um i found yeah i found really really compelling i thought it was a very like um versatile role that he played yeah i agree he's definitely very compelling and i think his role is what the movie depended on it, he has to be convincing he has to be charismatic he has to be likable and we have to believe that because he's going to take three other men down a very dark path and there he has to be a leader of men to be able to do that to be able to turn dark and, and lead these people in there so i think if he did not if he did not give it his all like he did it, the movie would have fallen flatter um and yeah the accent was i don't know what was going on there yeah the original person who this based on was from northern new york even though this accent sounds something like a Brooklyn cliche to me, but I, regardless, I, one thing that struck me with it is he's, he's such a competent person. And I think with that, that opening, you see that the various things he's able to do in a very short period of time, he's able to handle the situation and he's able to save people. He's able to be kind of considerate of that environment. And he, he is heroic and recommended for a bronze star, I think by, by Erickson. Um, the other aspect to his performance that I saw, and, and tell me if you guys saw this or not, was there's occasionally this like big kid that comes out, like not, not a 20 year old, but like a 13 year old. Um, and he seems to control, it seems to be a tool that he has, but it's, an, it's a really interesting 
tactic he uses, this kind of like big kind of muscular kid and all of that, um, all that competence and, and those points seem to fade away. It's also probably the, the points in the movie when he's almost his ugliest. Absolutely. I think he does have a big, in fact, I was thinking that when I was watching the movie, I think he unleashes it, whether knowingly or unknowingly, when he gets pushed back upon by Michael J. Fox. When Erickson refused to be part of, of, the, of the gang rape, he and starts insulting him and he goes and starts calling him gay or you know what have you, which is you associate that behavior with kind of like young kids, you know, especially young boys. You know, it's, it's common that kind of those kind of insults and then turning to his friends and, you know, doing hand gesture, vulgar hand gesture. That is common in very young kids. And then you grow out of that. Uh, and so to see him revert to that style, it was kind of surprising in a way where before he was just his charisma convinced people to do things. And when that his charisma was pushed back upon, he reverted to this big, big kid, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I also think it's a way of, um, it was, it was a type of tactic to undercut the seriousness of what they're doing. It seemed like it's something he did to try to say, like to, to completely um, lower the stakes and act like things aren't as big of a deal as they are. So that this type of like juvenile behavior is very deliberate because then it seems like um, Erickson is actually freaking out over basically nothing. And he's kind of goading him to say, what they're actually about to do, but he's putting it in a context where you wouldn't actually say it because they're talking like 13 year olds. Um, so I feel like it's a it's very much a tactic to completely sidestep, I think, the incredible like adult behavior that is happening um, in the scene as well. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I definitely think it was an important part of his character for sure. It's time for question two. What? does Own's mother offer her daughter as she's taken away? Locked in. Locked in. All right, Ragnar, what do you have? The mother was trying to offer a some kind of blanket or a rag. I believe it was just like a light-colored blanket. Uh, what do you have, Margaret? I have a scarf. Okay. Very good. Um, it was a scarf, so I'll give Margaret the points for that question. Um, it is kind of a, it's hard to tell. You know what? Points for everybody. I yeah, think that's fine. yeah, yeah. I think that's because you can't tell. <laughs> I knew it was a scarf because it's in the New Yorker article, so mm -hmm. I knew that that's what it was supposed uh... to be, but there's no way that, like, you could tell what, what the heck that was from watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that, yeah, as Margaret pointed out, that is taken right from the article. Apparently that is that is just what they did. And I brought this question forward to talk about, in the movie, her name is Own, O-A-N-H. In the original story, it was not. It was um, Min, I believe? Fao Ti Mao. Fao Ti Mao, okay. Fan Ti Mao, sorry, Thank I have you. it written down here, but I, okay. so I did not pronounce it correctly. Okay, Mao. Yeah. Mao. Mm -hmm. Mao. Okay, so yeah, they've, they've changed a number of these names. Um, in part to protect people, because actually her family ended up being brutalized after, and in part because of this incident. Um, I'm not 
entirely sure that's why they changed everybody's name, but it was changed for the movie. Uh, but regardless, I I brought this question forward to talk about her role in the movie uh, and ask you guys about what you thought of the way this character was treated, her kind of prominence in the movie and and such things as that. Because she is, I would say, just to, to start us up, she is an interesting, she's an interesting almost absence, right? Um, I don't think we even get her name. Like, I don't, I, I've seen the movie no. three times. I don't think we've heard it. I, I took it from the credits. Uh, that That's the only way I knew. And we don't get any of her language either. We don't really ever know what she says. Um, and so there is this, uh, it's even hard to like to, to see her. She's, you know, so upset or, or being treated. And also the, the, the camera, until she's at her worst, the camera doesn't necessarily meditate on her until the the scene at the bridge um and i yeah that that was curious to me that it seemed to be a movie in which this this person doesn't necessarily have an identity i thought that was important that she doesn't have an identity because the the, the soldiers the the four soldiers um don't have an identity for her. They don't see her as a human. Um, and so the film was shot that way, except for when Erickson was talking to her and when Erickson was alone with her, then you really get to see her face because he sees her as a human. And I thought the most impactful scene of the movie was after the rape, when he's trying to, when Erickson is trying to free her and uh, she cowers from him several times. I mean, she, I truly felt, you know, that she was like a traumatized, frightened animal that was just cowering from, from some danger that's coming, just primal fear. Uh, and this actress, who I don't think she doesn't have any other role that I can find, um, and it's pretty much the only emotion that she has to portray throughout the whole movie, just knocked it out of the park just was incredible in that scene and it's only until that's you know a little bit after that scene that she, the light hits her face and and erickson sees her her face is bloodied and beaten up where everything just really starts to dawn on him and then michael j fox has one of his most uh powerful scenes when he starts crying when he sees her um so i think she did a phenomenal job and i think the movie was very clever in making her a non-entity and also a very uh, compassionate or, or one that we emphasize with very strongly at the same time. So I actually have very complicated feelings about um, about her being kind of laced in many ways from the film. Um, so on one hand, I, I, I have a lot of problems with, with her kind of elasial. Um, because first of all, like taking away her humanity, like while it's really helpful for understanding the situation and the perspective of these men, and 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 at the end of the day, it is Erickson's story. So like, I understand that, um, and necessarily this trauma is dehumanizing. So I don't have any critiques of her performance. Um, there's also the reality that Erickson wanted to prosecute these men because she deserved a story. It was about, it was supposed to be about her, like 
the narrative is him processing this trauma, but he's saying that um, this is for her, um, and we don't we don't get that as much in the film. Um, but I also like I, I I really sometimes question um, the ethics of seeing such like intense um, suffering on the screen. Um, as a form of entertainment, even though we're not like entertained, like having a good time, I, I do sometimes wonder like, what, why are we seeing, why are we seeing this? Or is this just some sort of like disguised uh, sentimentality um, that, that there's a sense of like, we see this suffering, we feel uncomfortable with it. And somehow now we feel like we have a connection with the suffering that's happened, but we, we haven't, we're just watching a film. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I entirely like the way that we just kind of see this dehumanized version of her only. I think it does take something away. And she instead kind of stands in place like a symbol of abuse that happens as opposed to a woman who has been dehumanized. Um, I don't know if that all makes sense because I have like a lot of like conflicting feelings about it. Um, I also wonder what I would do to solve that problem in this film. And I can't think of a lot of answers. I think the only thing I would do to maybe have wholly gain some of her humanity is to add a scene or two in which the family is involved or a photograph of her before she is kidnapped is displayed or something is done in the legal procedures, something to show the audience her outside of these few days. Um, and I think that that could happen afterwards. Um, but the fact that we don't have it at all, it's kind of, con it, it's concerning to me. I, I think it's a type of erasure um, there for the sake of of this story about about these men. So I, I don't know, that's kind of a rambling answer to say, like, I, I like a lot of this depiction, but I also have some problems with it. My my reading of it ends up being that it's it's about that it's kind of about the impossibility of giving her focus in the way you're, you're talking about, Margaret. I mean, I, I don't th there is one I don't call it a solution, but one thing Brian De Palma gives her, which is the woman on the train, is the same actress. Um, uh, and that actress is um, Thai uh, Thu Lee. Uh, I, I might be mispronouncing that. but um, And so we do, we do see not, uh, not own outside of, of that context, but we actually see that same figure, that same person, surviving and th and presumably thriving she's a student um, however i think so much of the movie is about the kind of the impossibility of giving her presence or giving her identity um you know because in part because we just we never get her name um and you could say maybe that's an oversight it always felt kind of so deliberate to me because the the justice that ends up getting served i mean justice is served but it's also it's also very paltry and if you know the history of this and i know margaret does uh one of those sentences were thrown out and everybody else's sentence was reduced to eight years and they all hit probation after four so it, it seems as if that um it seems as if something failed to happen here even in the end, something failed to happen here. Um, and I'd like to just jump in real quick and say uh, that scene at the end with the women, the woman was my least favorite scene. I thought it was a critical mistake for that film for so many reasons. And I thought it was frankly like upsetting um, uh, and insulting um, to to the woman. Um, 
to uh, the woman who is uh, late, um, that that you have this type of like sequence where he's just absolved because another Asian woman, who I guess is the same woman, but she's not, um, who doesn't know him, is doing this type of like insight, uh, like emotional labor that requires a type of feminine instinct that speaks for all of women and her land, um, and that's somehow going to make him feel better about it, like this weird like absolution that can exist, but also like, I felt that that was actually a further erasure of the woman who was raped because there was a sense of like, well, he's at least forgiven by this other woman on the train. So there was some piece there. I know that's not entirely what was meant, but I found it to be a really like dissatisfying and I don't know, uh, off-putting ending. I, no, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I, I do want to talk about some points that you said, but the most recent one was that the ending that you were critiquing, and, and I would agree with you. I like the bookend idea. I like him being in the bus and seeing a girl that reminds him of the victim, and I, I, I liked that. And I even like him giving her the scarf uh, because in a way it, it calls back to the scarf from the beginning that the mother gave him. So I like that. And I almost wish it would have ended with her just saying, okay, thanks. Bye. Uh, and then going about her way and him not really finding that resolution that the you're forgiven kind of thing, which was just kind of like, why would she say this to some random guy just giving her a scarf? So it, it was a bit odd. So I like the idea, but I do agree that the ending was, I don't know, just a bit uh, distasteful. And I think it would have been more powerful if he didn't find absolution, that, he, that that's, that's some stuff that he has to live with for the rest of his life because he does. Um, so I, I absolutely uh, agree with you on that. Um, then as far as the, the, the why, and I think this is a very important question because in all the movies that I've reviewed on this podcast, we never really ask, why is this being film why are we watching this you know and and it's a very difficult question because this is an extremely heavy movie and i guess for me it it goes into well why was there an article written about this why is there a painting about these things you know it is i would i would see you know there, there's movies like marvel that's business and it's entertainment um and then there's movies like this that is more artistic but what is the point? It's a good question. And I know you know this because you said that, but I just want to say like, you know, I agree with your kind of like, what's the word? Kind of like torn, you know? It, it's an important tale. It's, a, it's an important story to be told. And probably this movie spread that story more than the article did um, in, in its own imperfect way. So it, it is... And, and that's what um, I like that. I like this kind of like torn emotions. It makes the movie and the experience more interesting. Not that I should be having a great time about this woman's experience, but you understand what I'm saying. Do you guys know the original ending that was originally written? Oh, no. I, I, I don't. No, the, the original ending is we see his dream and it stays in his dream. And in his dream, those guys get out of jail and they come to his house and they um, grab his wife and daughter. And then Thomas, the, the corporal, says, um, 
she's the pretty one. Let's take her. And then Minerva says, well, she's the pretty one, echoing the, the scene in the hutch. And the scene ends with them, with the dream. The, the movie ends with an, another rape. It's a dream, but it's well, it's that. And um, David Ray rewrote the ending, including that kind of corny line. I think it's over now. Under duress. He did not want to write that. He wanted to stay with the hard scene. And De Palma put forward two arguments why he didn't want that. Um, the, the first one was he didn't want any more violence to happen. He didn't want to show any more. Um, he thought at that point, you're just torturing Erickson because, you know. And the audience. Yeah, and, and the audience, um, which is actually a, a question I have for you. The other one, which I thought was interesting, and I, I actually want to know what, what you guys think about this, because I don't know how convincing this is, is he saw um, the the unnamed woman at the end um, as representing uh, basically moving on or not being defined by a traumatic historical episode. He said in an interview, he said, many Vietnamese people have come to America. There are countrymen. There are, um, people living in Vietnam have moved on and become successful. And that he wanted the end to show that Vietnamese people were not strictly victims, right? That there was, there was something beyond this. Um, it seems like the writing is so bad that that kind of gets lost. I don't know if that intention was, was manifest. I think that's a great idea. And I think, and I was on board with that. And I, and I felt like I saw that a little bit because you see her and she's, I mean, the way she's dressed and the way she's sitting, she seems like a successful person, you know, she's not begging on the street, you know, she's very well put together. looks very nice and is, looks like she's going somewhere. And I think if he were to just leave it at that, the visual there is enough to show us that, look, this person is successful in, in a country that, did horrific things to her people. Uh, so I, th I think I think that's a great idea. I do think it gets lost because of that corny ending, that corny line, just the very end, the last 30 seconds, just didn't, the landing wasn't great. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and again, like not to keep bringing it back to this article, but it is how the article ends, is that he's on the bus, he sees an Asian woman, and he was sleeping on the bus, and he wakes up, and for a second it makes him think, of her and he imagines um, like this peaceful scene. Um, and he imagines that this is a woman back in Vietnam just going about her day and there's something like really beautiful, but it's clear like this is him just making this kind of subconscious connection. Um, and so it, I, I felt like, okay, I know exactly what they're doing here. They're recreating this scene. Um, and I like the idea of showing like, yes, like, moving on the sense of like Vietnamese people are not just bugged by this one thing. Um, but the fact, the only word like term I can use for this is like emotional labor from this woman, that the fact that it's somehow still on her shoulders um, to absolve him and that there's this immediate knowing that she's able to kind of identify the situation pretty immediately. Um, this is probably me reading too much into the film, but I, read that scene as a woman who has seen a lot of Vietnam vets and has probably said things like this a lot, like as a Vietnamese woman um, living during this time, um, that there was an immediate recognition because there was, uh, you know, thousands of Ericsons all over the place. Um, and she is somehow, it's somehow on her shoulders to, to 
comfort the Ellickson's um, of the nation. Um, yeah, so so yeah, it, it was a good idea. I just did not like how it ended. Yeah, I agree. I think that's that's the only way the scene makes sense. And I even thought that as I was watching it, like the only way that conversation makes sense is if she's some kind of volunteer or, or has experienced this many times before. So she knows what this man is going through and, and decides to comfort her. That's the only way it makes sense. But it's it's putting too much on the audience to have to like make that connection. Yeah. I don't as as a woman, I'm not a woman of color. I don't have the same the the same societal pressures at all. But I would say like as a woman, like there is a sense of kind of being expected to provide a type of emotional label. And like I don't mind it, but there is a sense of like, oh, you're you're a woman, you understand, you comfort. There, there is actually a gender dynamic that actually comes to play very quickly. And again, this is maybe why I'm reading into it. Um, but there's a sense of like I don't know, recognizing a lost soul and recognizing it's kind of your job um, to to nurture in any in any given moment. Um, so I, I get the impression that this is this is a type of understanding um, from this woman. And again, I this is not my like identity. It's not my my perspective. This could be completely a projection on my end. Um, but that that was the impression I got. So at the end of round one, we have a tie with one point apiece, and we're going to take a brief break, and we will be right back. Hello, and, and welcome, welcome back, back to B-Side. B-side. Back to B-side. To B-side. Finally, it is B-Side. Today we're going to be talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We're going to be discussing the famous W.F. Murnau film from 1927, Sunrise. The Icelandic movie from 2015, Rams. Juzo Itami's 1985 picture, Tam Popo. And today I'm going to be talking about a good old film that we just covered, and this is 1984's Ghostbusters. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side, wherever you listen to Talking Pictures Trivia. All right, and we're back. Uh, Now at our mid- point we usually ask our guest if they had a potential sequel in mind what what would you do what would be the next chapter in this story were you to script one and who would like to start so um i mean this isn't exactly a movie that necessarily warrants a sequel um not really around to kind of movie but if i were to write a film it would be a type of companion piece i think and it would be probably the other women who are kind of erased from this movie. So it could either be a film about um, uh, Owen's family um, and what what happened in their um, uh, participation in this trial um, and the type of choices that they had to make and the reasons why they cooperated um, with the authorities um, to have these men prosecuted. So that would be it. Or I would actually have a story about the wife of one of the men convicted um, uh, as well. And and um, someone raising a child why, while their husband is like serving a sentence for for these horrible war crimes and how you would process that. So I, that's like actually two sequels, but that's, I think the direction I would go. You have a whole trilogy set up. Yes, it would be a great time. How about you, Ragnar? Uh, I felt that at the end, regardless of that 
final line that we all agree is not great. Michael J. Fox still looked pretty messed up as he should be. Um, you know, he was even sweating, I think. Um, so I think there's, there's a, still a lot to, to explore in that character. I would push the sequel uh, originally when I wrote this, when I wrote the sequel, quote unquote, um, I did not know that their sentences were reduced so dramatically. So I said, you know, 20 years in the future when they got out. So I believe they got out in less than 10 or something like that. So let's just say in 10 years, um, how is Michael J. Fox and his family, his wife and his daughter uh, handling it? And now that these soldiers are coming out of prison, are they going to seek revenge? Um, have they figured out that it was their doing that got them where they are and not Michael J. Fox standing up for the victim you know so there's there's a lot to explore and the dynamic because it was hinted at there was going to be some kind of revenge so it would be a movie exploring if that does come about uh 10 years down the road and you can call it casualties of peace it's time for question three when corporal thomas e clark asks sergeant tony meserve when was the last time he had a real woman what is Meserve's response? Locked in. Locked in. All right, Margaret, what do you have? Oh, gosh, I remember this scene and I swear I do not remember what he said. I thought that he said something along the lines that she was a, a real woman, but I could be, I could be, I, I feel in like my, my bones that I'm misremembering this. So, um, but, but yeah, that he said something to the extent about, about her being a real woman after raping her, but I, I don't know, frankly. Uh, Ragnar, what do you have? You got it, Margaret. He does say uh, she is real. And I think he says it a few times, mumbling to himself or something like that. Yes, he says, she was real. I think she was real. And so this brings us to the, the, the crux of the movie and the, the violence and in the movie. Um, I, the movie that came to mind when I, I watched this for my, my second viewing for this podcast was Gaspar Knoll's Irreversible. I don't know if anybody has seen that. You have, Ragnar? Well, it, that movie is also about a, about a rape, a, a violent rape that occurs in the middle of the movie. It it's, does the Harold Pinter betrayal thing that moves backwards. And it... I didn't see the rest of the movie because I turned it off after the scene. It's, I, it, it's quite a disgusting movie in a number of ways. And that scene, that sort of finished it for me. I didn't really need to see the rest of the movie. Um, and I think there's a number of kind of depictions of violent sex. You could think of, I think, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left is another one, which it depicts right where straw dogs, um, all of which I... I really hate and I, I think they are either kind of tantalizing in the way they depict it or they have this sort of immense kind of nihilism neither of which i think is 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 right is appropriate or really works and i found this movie the, the violence in this movie to be both deeply upsetting but but functional it didn't i didn't have that response i didn't want to turn the movie off after 
after seeing it. I didn't think it was this kind of nihilistic close to the, the, the human species or anything like that. And I was wondering what you guys thought of um, the violence in, in all its forms. Yeah, I, I have seen those movies that you talked about, especially Straw Dogs really stands out to me because that uh, rape scene, it reminded me more of like these torture porn movies like Saw or Saw 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, um, where the violence is the purpose and I don't know. And, and I, I couldn't get through Straw Dogs, didn't like it. Uh, this one, I mean, it's an impossible thing to see, uh, to, to film. How do you film a rape uh, and, and have it pay service to the story instead of just be gratuitous? I think it's as, as good as it could be you know, they, they, they shot it, I think, from Erickson's perspective, or at least he walked away from the hut and he was standing guard. I keep, I keep doing quotation marks in an in in audio podcast, so I'll just say, quote unquote, standing guard. Um, so it, it's from his perspective, which makes sense. The whole movie is his, his perspective. Yeah, so I agree. As hard as it, it is, this is as good as you can do it, I guess. Yeah, I would agree um, that it's a very, very difficult um, thing. And I think they did it well to make it like horrifying, but it didn't linger. Um, I don't have the same like film context um, that you that you guys uh, do. I watch a lot of really like nice little films. Um, so, you know. And, and, and then Tom makes you watch this one. <laughs> no, but um, my context. They're, they're not worth watching, by the way. Watch <laughs> none of those movies. Don't yeah. worry, don't worry. Um, <laughs> no, but with that in mind, um, my, my context actually for this is the literature I study. I study um, a lot of abolitionist literature and a lot of anti-colonial um, literature. In particular, I look at how violence is depicted um, in poetry uh, in particular, but narratives that were circulated uh, throughout the 19th century. And they almost always are focused on the violation of a woman. And it's a spectacle of the typically the public rape and the um, murder of a woman and the response that's done um, by the, the man. And there's actually a lot of literature that even suggests that this type of trope of the brutalization of a woman as this type of cornerstone of civilization, like the call for ban to civilized society, going back to like ancient Rome with the rape of Lucretia, um, actually being the catalyzing event for like the Roman Republic. So there's, there's this entire like idea of women being brutalized and there's like this paternalistic call, um, patriarchal call that comes with it. Um, and I think a lot like, okay, what is the function of this? What does this actually say about how we view women and women's bodies for entertainment? And I don't have any good questions. This is a very long-winded way to say, um, I often think about the function of spectacle in this. Like, is this abuse becoming a spectacle? Uh, meaning, is this something that's meant to be viewed and we are somehow like lingering um, in the viewing and it's all about the imagery itself and that's a key form of the entertainment and even like a key form of showing your skill as an artist how you can have this um spectacle and in many of these cases with these narratives the spectacle it's it's about watching the woman brutalized but it's also about knowing who's watching the woman brutalized as well and it's the way of sharing this type of witness that then the audience does um you see who's seeing um it's this weird kind of dynamic and i think that this film does that um and deals with that and i think that it 
it does enough to make you deeply uncomfortable, but it doesn't fall fully into spectacle range. Um, and part of that is because it, it relies on sound so much. I think that that's really the key distinguisher that it's horrifying, um, but because it's it's hard so much um, as opposed to visually um, shown as much, I think that that's how they kind of split the difference. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't. I can't imagine how they would do it differently, even though it's a it's a difficult thing to film. Yeah, I think it's a really great point. This idea of, of spectacle avoiding that, as you're saying, yeah, it's a really great point. Um, and I, I think that I, I, the her walking on the bridge after she's she's stabbed and she walks across that bridge is it's a stunning bit of cinematography. Uh, I, I think that that also helps is that it, it doesn't it doesn't do what these other movies does. It doesn't do what you were saying, Margaret, that, that kind of spectacle thing and certainly doesn't titillate. And it's a, also a really great point about it's done with sound, um, which if you, if Margaret, read the article that's based on, um, I think Erickson says, he, he compares it to the sound of, of gutting a deer in that article that that's a that was they took it out of the movie but that that was what he heard that's what it sounded like uh and yeah that that kind of sense seems to be to be brought forward and then just the i mean it's it's a hor horrifying scene but her walking across the bridge is just, it's it's a stunning bit of of cinematography and and Meserve's response to her too is strange he doesn't, he doesn't shoot her right away. There's something sort of initially anyway, beyond him about, about what's happening in that moment. Um, I've never been able to quite make out what that moment is about when Mazur first sees her walking across the bridge and he, he just yells for everybody else to shoot her. Right? I mean, he eventually does, but he doesn't seem to know what to do in that moment. And, and not only, I think that seems connected to the one right before because not only does he not shoot her first and orders everyone else to do it, he doesn't stab her. And he, he passes the knife around to everybody else except for himself. He never says, fine, I'll do it, even though this is all his idea and his plan and he executed it. So I do agree with you that there's something going on there. I just can't quite figure it out, but there, he, he, something's happening to him. Um, and I just want to go back to what you said about the, the sound of like a, skinning a deer or gutting a deer. Um, and I kind of thought he said gutting a deer. Was gutting that a deer. And it kind of reminds me of what I said earlier, not knowing this because I hadn't read the article about the scene after the rape when he's when Michael J. Fox's character is trying to help her. She she sounds I mean, when I was watching, I was like, this is like a terrified animal you know like a deer like she, she i mean she, that and it's not violence but it's the aftermath aftermath of violence that was portrayed just so harrowing and and, and even though this might be a little uh, ridiculous to say it almost affected me more than the violence you know that scene when he's trying to help her and she's just backing away terrified the, the, the language barrier everything it, it just it rattled me more uh, than the, than the rape scene, which, when you watch, I mean, just because anyone, you know, who's human, you just try to kind of like go away mentally a little bit, you know. Um, 
So it was just very, very affecting. And absolutely, the, the scene on the bridge is phenomenal. Uh, in particular, uh, Brian De Palma, he's a very distinct filmmaker. He, uh, his styles are very unique. And one of his favorite things to do is to bring a, a close-up of someone's face while have something happening in the background. And he hinted at that in the beginning with Michael J. Fox when, when Brownie was shot, he was shooting and he didn't see the person, the people going into a tunnel behind him um, to a certain point. And in the bridge, and this was also very affecting, he's shooting down at the, at the, at the river and he doesn't see her get stabbed uh, with a machete in the background near the train tracks. Uh, so I thought that was also incredibly done. Uh, the director and the cinematographer have worked together in various movies and they're a phenomenal team. I mean, they're great filmmakers. So, yeah, I guess I'd like to dovetail on, on both of the points that you guys made. I guess, first of all, with that kind of refusal to um, kill her, what struck me was that he really wanted um, uh, the more hesitant, why am I so bad at names? The more like hesitant. Diaz? Diaz, the, yes. The, the younger one? Yeah, he yeah. wanted, he really wanted Diaz to do it because Clark was very gung-ho, but there seemed to be an insistence. First of all, I think there was a, this realization of how serious it is. Like it's one thing to rape someone, but then when you are murdering them, it somehow weirdly becomes more, not weirdly, but it becomes more real. Um, so this insistence that if Diaz, I, I got the impression that if Diaz did it, first of all, like it would be less likely that they talk, but there was also a sense that he did it somehow was more justifiable, but if it, it could still be something horrible. Um, there was something important about Diaz crossing the line. Um, so that was, that was interesting to me. Um, but then also what you were saying about that, that scene with Erickson coming in and she's still so terrified for me, like what really struck me was that his presence is a type of violence. It's not intended. He does ultimately offer her comfort. Like she does get a slight, like kind of reprieve in that moment. So it's not that he's being violent, but his, his everything about those circumstances, like who he is, what he embodies as a part of that group, that being close by, he can't help but actually perpetuate the violence regardless um, because it's all traumatizing um, in this moment and it's all going to be led as trauma. Um, and I felt that that also showed his helplessness, that even though he's desperately trying not to be complicit, his presence is a type of complicit, like he is complicit in, in a way, no matter what, um, and he perpetuates, perpetuates it even though he, he desperately wants to do the opposite. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because, you know, I remember even thinking when he's trying to help, I'm like, hey, buddy, slow down. Like, don't, you know, don't be so in her face about it. You know, maybe from a distance, offer her food to try to calm her down, you know, but I agree that even though he's trying to help her, just him walking towards her is, you know, adding fuel to the fire. And what I like about the this, like, you know, what I like about the scene after is when he's trying to free her and then he can't he, he he tries to get her and he tries to shoot her in a way you know he was like shoot go 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 because i can't go with you i'm a deserter and this and that i i really appreciated that scene because i put myself in his shoes uh in that you know he's a he's a he, he's i think he's older than the rest maybe a little bit I, I say that because he has a wife and daughter even though you can have that earlier but i assume that he's a little bit older at least maybe more mature because he has a wife and daughter that he loves i also have a wife and a very young daughter 
and um, which is something that's changed my life very recently. And putting myself in his shoes, you're in the middle of the jungle, surrounded by four guys that, I mean, they could kill you uh, to, to hide this thing, but you're torn to help. So what do you do? Do you help this person in front of you? Clearly he wants to. Or is your priority to go back home to your daughter and make sure she has a father? It, it, it's a very difficult scene. I wish they explored that a little bit. I think they did in that scene and I, I appreciated that. And it's, you know, there's no easy answer. It's, that's why it was a, such a memorable scene because there is no easy answer. It's interesting. The, um, the reason why he, he can't, right? Well, he can't leave with her, with, with um, own. He says, do you remember what he says? He says, it's, uh, I'll be a deserter. I'll be a deserter. Yeah, I wish mm-hmm. they'd, he, they brought it to his family rather than his status in the, in the military. Or maybe somehow those were connected. I don't know. But. I, I think it's part of the, the problem of him or part of the moral guilt is that the thing, and you, you read about it in the, this book too, but I think it's not just the book or, or the article, I think it's clear in the movie, is there's, there's this like military system and he, is, he can't get out of it. And not even like he, can't, like he physically can't get out of it. He's psychologically kind of stuck in that place. And he is, you know, somewhat, you could say he might be somewhat but guilty in that, in that regard. Now, granted, if he goes, if he runs away with her, you know, they're probably just going to kill him, right? I don't think he's going to get very far with a, with a dying woman. So, or a very sick woman. So it's, it's not, um, yeah, it, it's not a tremendous amount of guilt, I, I think, but I. Do you, do I, you think, do you think he was, when he, when he didn't go with her, do you think it was because like, I guess I'm a little bit confused as to the deserter thing. Mm-hmm. He says, I don't want to be a deserter. I took it as he doesn't want something to happen to him that will affect his family because I don't think he cares too much about the system because right after the events, he really fights against that system to the detriment of his well-being. You know, ultimately he gets away with it, but someone tried to assassinate him. Um, so I, I was just confused. He seemed at one scene, he seemed to be, I don't want to be a deserter. And then right after he's like, let's fight the system. I, I just, I'm not sure. He, he never doesn't follow an order with the exception of, of rape, right? He never, right. like when they rape her, they tell him you're on point, right? He doesn't now. He probably couldn't do anything for on men with guns. Right. Um, but he, goes right to point, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, whenever he questions uh, Minerve and Minerve says, you know, go off, relieve uh, Chauncey Riley's character, whose name I forgot. Um, Hutton, uh, something Hatcher. like that? Hatcher, thank you. Uh, you know, he just, he goes and does it. There, There is a certain chain of command that's been mm. beaten into him. Um, I don't know if that makes him guilty. I, I tend to think not, but I do think it's, I think that's in him even more than the the, the wife and daughter thing. I, I guess I, I read that as he knew that he was way alone. Like I'm in the middle of nowhere with four jackals um, that if I don't cozy up to, they will kill me. And I, I, I have to do something about this. Maybe 
when I can be more effective later on. I guess that's how I read it rather than him being like into his mind being kind of shackled to the, the chain of command. But I, I don't know. I, that was just my reading. Hmm. What do you think, Margaret? I don't know. I, I guess I, I, I read it a little bit more like Wagner's reading it, that he's just like, like, yes, he was concerned about being a disorder. He can't do that. But it, there's, it's not so much that he's breaking the rules. It's just like the rules are the only thing that's keeping him alive. As a disorder, he is in nobody's army. Um, anybody can shoot him. Um, and there's a lot of people with guns. So like odds are you're going to get shot pretty quickly. Um, so so I, I felt like it wasn't so much that, although I, I do think it's worth noting that he never like, like to Tom's point, he never does go outside of like, outside of procedure. Like he goes to his superiors, he, he has a little bit of insubordination, but it's not, not true insubordination. And then he talks to a minister who then turns us over to criminal investigations, which is also extremely by the book. So he never actually, does anything he's he's subversive in nature because he's not breaking the unspoken rules but he's very good at like following the spoken rules and the 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 actual procedures right so like subversive within the structure yeah within the rules of the structure and more so that there's a sense that he believes that the structure ultimately will serve justice and that's that's something that's throughout the film that he says things like gosh, we're supposed to be helping these people. He, he says this over again. He still has this type of idealization. And that's why I think that scene with um, uh, Wiley is so important, where he tells him about um, his daughter's birth and being in jail and basically being trained into submission to the system because this is how you see your daughter. And, and I think it's an important moment because he's explaining to somebody who is lived a life where the system is supposed to be about justice, that the system actually does mean if you do the right thing and you work hard, like you will have justice. And he's so like realizing that's not necessarily um, the case. Do you know uh, when the writing of the article or the writing of the book or the making of the movie had these uh, people's sentences already been reduced? Or were people thinking this guy's going to, or at least one guy is going to be there for life? I'm just curious as to like when it was known, like, oh, they're getting off with a slap in the wrists. It's in the book. It's, it's not in the movie, obviously, but yeah. No, it it's in the-, in the article too. And the article okay. came out in 69. So it was, I think it was within 18 months to two years or something that that things had been reduced. Because mm-hmm. I, I just find it, uh, going back to my sequel, Casualties of Peace, like I was finding it interesting seeing the reaction to like, okay, I pushed hard. I went against the system. I was almost killed uh, and I got them behind bars. You know, there, there's some form of justice and then it'd be drastically reduced and how he would react to that. Just, just a side rant. Yeah, th- that is, it's interesting that that's left out of the movie, right? The, the reduction in, right. in sentences. Um, I think that's probably part of De Palma's wanting to ease the tension or ease ease the, the pain at the end. Uh, and I, I think that kind of sympathy, even though I think we all have our own troubles with the ending, that sort of sympathy bleeds through a lot of these scenes. There's a lot of sympathy in this movie. And I think it may be that you get a crappy ending in order to have a more humane picture. But um, yeah, I think I'd have, that would would have been 
rough also with this movie to kind of see those sentences reduced, even though right. probably very important to, right. <laughs> to, to have put that in there. Yeah. I, I would have put rather have that than the second yeah, yeah. rape scene, even though that was imaginary. I mean, man, you can't, you yeah. can't air that movie, you know? I mean, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would have liked a little bit more time spent lingering on the fact that Masov wasn't um, convicted of rape in this case. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And they say like, oh, he's convicted mm. of murder, but he doesn't get a rape charge um really? after oh, all of that yeah. yeah and like that's a pretty big deal um yeah what's up with that Do you, yeah Th- and that's what happened one? um I don't, because that sentencing was a crapshoot um but yeah it was the unpremeditated motto i think mm-hmm. or was it premeditated uh, mode i don't remember what but he I got off. one of them got like thomas or, or thomas did them. yeah yeah mm-hmm. thomas got premeditative mm-hmm. yeah and and wait yeah yeah. Um, but Mazov actually got less less of conviction. That is interesting. Yeah, and, and tying it to the movie, like I feel like after the bridge scene, the, the the weight and the pacing kind of and the movie making kind of deflated a little bit. It, it just kind of like fast forward through a lot of things. And I understand runtime is only so long, but they did kind of speed through that. I mean, this whole second half. Could have been its own movie you know uh, almost yeah. like a, a legal thriller um so very yeah very deep and uh, multi-layered story for sure it's time for question four what year does the movie open up on not what year is in the the print right at the beginning of the film but what year does the movie actually start on visually Locked in. Oh, locked in. All right, Ragnar, what do you have? 1970. All right, Margaret, what do you have? 1968. Oh, okay. Almost. Um, we're going to go to a, a tiebreaker. It was 1974. And we know that because Richard Nixon had just resigned. You could see it in the newspapers. I mean, yes. Wagner was closer. So if you wanted to do a tiebreaker, you could <laughs> price, it. price is right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, uh, I have, I have another one. If, okay. if this doesn't work out, uh, then we will, um, we, we, Ragnar may get it. I actually have a few tiebreakers, but anyway, let's give this a try. What historical figure does Hatcher compare himself to? Locked in. I'm locked in. All right, Ragnar, what do you have? My wild guess is going to be Alexander the Great. Okay, Margaret, what do you have? 
Uh, Genghis Khan. All right, and Margaret wins the episode. Nice. Congratulations. Very good. Um, so I actually didn't bring that question forward to, to talk about Genghis Khan. Um, I just had it as a tiebreaker. But I, I did want to, to talk about uh, Michael J. Fox and his performance. We started this episode talking about Sean Penn and, and the work he does. Michael J. Fox is apparently a very different type of uh, uh, process for his acting than Penn. Apparently Sean Penn did not speak to anyone in the cast during the, the filming in order to create a kind of discomfort uh, and refused to kind of acknowledge Michael J. Fox's contributions in any way. Um, and then of course, Michael J. Fox is you know, much more kind of open and charismatic in his own way. And I want to know what you thought of Fox in the film as well as uh, the character he he is is embodying, that is Erickson. You know, when I started watching the film, I kind of felt that he was a bit miscast at first because um, I'm used to Marty McFly, right? And I didn't know if he would be able to to carry the weight of that role. But by the end, I, I was. I was pleasantly surprised by his performance. I don't think he was the the best actor on set. I do think Penn and uh, the the lady who played the victim, I, I forgot her name. She's only done that one movie. I think they both outclass him. Um, but I, I kind of like I kind of like that he did this. I, I appreciate that he took on this role uh, when he was you know Teen Wolf, Back to the Future. This movie came out the same year as Back to the Future Two. You know, so I, I appreciated him expanding his range and he did an admirable job in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I, I did like that he came in as this type of like teen icon, like um, that there was really a sense of like, you know him as this, I don't know, like naive, like teenager who kind of gets into scrapes. And I mean, that that is who is drafted into the Vietnam War. What would yeah. you know marty teens. mcflies yeah, yeah teens true. um so there was a sense of like i liked that initially it felt like michael j fox didn't fit there because michael j fox didn't fit there nobody did um or very few people did so i i actually liked that it felt kind of miscast because that's what the draft was it was an incredible miscasting with the much like higher stakes um so so yeah i i, I liked his performance and his casting i would agree wasn't on quite the same caliber as some of his castmates, but it was certainly serviceable for, for the role. Um, and it was a difficult role. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah. I didn't see I didn't see it that way that, you know, no who who is right for that role? Who is right to have their, I guess their way their their innocence uh, crushed. Uh, so I think that yeah, you know, that's a very good point. You put in the the heartthrob, the teenager, the all American boy, and and crush him in the hellhole that was the Vietnam War. I I like his performance a lot because it never becomes a sort of whine, even when he has to deal. There's the one speech I really didn't like where he has to say, uh, and it's a real David Raid line. Like you know, maybe maybe if we could die at any moment 
then things matter even more, you know. Um, Absolutely. Low point of the film, for sure. Yeah, another low point. Yeah. Um, But even that, he doesn't come off whiny or or moralizing. Um, It seems like the actual Erickson, whose whose name wasn't Erickson, from the article, I don't know, Margaret, if you got this impression, was much more cerebral. I I got that impression that he was, yeah, a a bit of a, a, you know, working class guy, but a, bright guy um and i think he went back to college didn't he after the affair or at least maybe for a little while i, I'm, I'm I think forgetting. he did mm-hmm. he at least started taking college classes or something yeah he seemed like a very reflective guy and he did say that that exact like speech in the article but it, it came off very much as this kind of curated reflection like thinking over several years, like this is this is actually how I feel about it, um, as opposed to this moment. And I think what was it the review that you mentioned, Tom? Um, yeah, the Pauline Kale review. Yeah, I read I read that, and she made that exact point that mm-hmm. like this was in the article, but it wasn't said like this. This is actually like the worst point in this movie, <laughs> um, yeah. and it was inappropriate to have it in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think she makes that point too about him kind of having a kind of moralistic or or not a moralist. He doesn't he doesn't have that kind of um whatever, like like Tom Cruise in Born on the Fourth of July or something like that, right? That it's it's uh, much more kind of reactive, um it's also much more kind of animal in a cage in, in a lot of those things. Um yeah. I I also want to ask, so we we might just cut this into movie rant. It's fine. We don't actually have to, to stop at all. But I, I did want to ask about um, how kind of justice is served in this. One thing, comparing the the initial story, the article, the book to this movie is in the in the book, he actually looks for the right person. Not only does he go up the chain of command, once that fails, he looks around and finds the right person who I believe just happens to be a reverend, right? And he kind of, he's very careful. He checks the guy out. He's, he wants to make sure this isn't a guy who's going to either laugh it off or get him in trouble. Um, and we're talking about the, the movie or the book? The book, yeah. Book, yeah. And the but reverend it, happened to be a formal cop too, which is oh, really wow. the thing he didn't, <laughs> the thing that he didn't know actually uh, uh, from the impression. So that was the real, it seemed like be the real important piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And in this, though, it's accidental. Right? It, it's he's drinking at a bar and the perfect guy walks up and sits down. Right. It, it's entirely accidental. Uh, and it's just before that scene where he, he knocks Clark out and he's like, you don't have to kill me. I told everyone. No one cares. I I that's. Yeah, another fantastic scene. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it seems like there is, even though we don't get the reduction in sentences, which I think would have been helpful, um, there is still, I think, this sense of this stuff still happened kind of accidentally. Like he was able to get justice sort of accidentally. He was still sort of uh, haphazard. Um, and that's something we haven't really brought up, that kind of that ending that ending slide into the trial. I was wondering what you guys thought of that as well. Yeah, I felt that the way in which kind of the series of events that took place in the trial, I I didn't like, I, I felt that they kind of revved up the stakes when the stakes are already very high. So for example, 
the blowing up the, of the latrine. I just felt like this is kind of over the top. I mean, it's not kind of, it's extremely over the top um, to blow up anything. Um, but to have suddenly it was almost like a thriller feeling or an adventure, adventure film that he is now a hero. And I, and I got the impression that they did this because you needed to hit him to see seem truly heroic. There was a sense of like giving him back his masculinity or something by having it in this way. Um, and then having it just kind of like slide into this, this kind of situation. I felt like also played along this type of like, I don't know, um, like action film or something like it, that it wasn't, it made it all the more dramatic. And I felt like it didn't need to be dramatic that the fact that it was this type of like insistent um, reporting, which is perhaps not as interesting, I think would have been a lot more important. Um, I felt that it was like an unnecessary like move to drama that they they did it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I kind of like mentioned it briefly before where after the bridge scene, it just the pacing's not quite right and the, the events are not quite right. And I understand you, you can't make this more, much more than two hours. It was under two hours, I think. Yeah. Um, so I understand that, but you have a grenade blow up the latrine and he's diving out of it. Look, I love a great explosion, especially someone's diving out of the window to, to avoid it. So I'm all down for that. But it just felt way out of place because then why isn't there an investigation about that? Um, you know, why isn't there an investigation about him shoveling someone in the face? You know, it was just, it was, it was odd. And I felt they could have created tension a different way just by having them threaten his family, you know? He, the the these people could say, hey, you saw what we did out there in the field. We're going to do that to your wife. That's stakes are high there, you know. So, yeah, I don't know why that grenade scene is in there. I think it's not right. Um, as far as the trial goes, I did love, and I think this is the best scene of the second half of the film, is when they're walking past him after it's written and he's looking at them kind of looking away looking at them and i think that was a very powerful scene much more than the grenade going off for sure yeah i, I well comments i think this i really liked as i said before him just telling them listen no one cares you can you can stop now you know this this doesn't matter um though i i guess i agree it's it's a little over the top of the exploded thing you could do that in a in a much more subtle way but it it that whole the the end of the movie does feel a lot like the air is being let out of something um and i i it feels intentional to me it just feels as if the that what you're seeing here is really a failure that accidentally turned into something like justice which you know as we as we know turned out really not to be justice that's outside the context of the movie though but that's what that whole ending felt like that's what it, that's the the explosion felt to me like this big dramatic thing that didn't go anywhere just as this kind of investigation wasn't going to go anywhere just as there isn't any kind of stability here it doesn't really work and you know, unless you accidentally get drunk next to an, an investigating Methodist for for happenstance, um, and and that's why that kind of that feeling of sort of 
hopelessness transformed. It went from this sort of this dread of what's going to happen and what you can't do to prevent it to, you know, the the what we usually complain of as a kind of a Kafka-esque problem. Um, it's not really Kafka-esque because it isn't like he doesn't know how to do the paperwork or something like that. It's a, it's worse. It's an absurdity of indifference, right? It's absurd to be this indifferent. And it's absurd that, you know, exploding a latrine just kind of doesn't matter. Um, and it, you know, and that just builds on worst and past absurdities as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the absurdity of indifference by his superiors was, I, I think, very believable. Um, and I mean, you can not not that this is to justify or, or make excuses for that. Obviously, they should have been more into it. Um, when you are dealing with so much death and just brutality day in day out your soldiers are getting killed the civilians are getting killed the enemy soldiers are getting killed this one guy is complaining about a rape and a one kill it's like they're dead to that you know they don't care and especially it's the enemy like what are you talking about you think i'm going to put one of my guys one of on our side um on the sword because they what they were a little rough quote unquote you know with, with the enemy. And I think that's a very powerful message, you know, just the, how indifferent you can become in, in, in that environment. And it took a priest or a chaplain or whatever he was that he's there, but he's not in the, in the field, or at least I don't know, you know, he, he seemed like he was pretty well balanced. So I just imagine someone that's well balanced is probably not killing people every day. Um, to someone from the outside to step in and say, no, no, this is wrong. This is what we have to do. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. well, and to go off of your point, I think it's, it's worth noting that indifference is a really important coping mechanism, um, that in order to be able to live in that environment, you actually kind of like need to shut your brain off um, and become um insensitive to to these things because it will destroy you um and it and obviously turning your brain off to this destroys you in another way so it's a lose-lose situation but those those are like an essential part of survival and with a minister he's seeing the horrors of war but he's not complicit in the same way that there's a sense of being able to face what's going on and face consequences um that does not harm him the same way because as soon as you start putting these acts on trial you have to open the door of more culpability more broadly of what's happening and you just you can't sit with those emotions or sit with those consequences um when you're in the middle of all of the things that they were in the middle of not to justify it but like there is something to be said about about how people survive in those situations yeah, that's actually very interesting you know just you do have to, and then are they to blame? You know, they, they kind of touch upon this where I forgot which one of the the rapists say, you know, we're soldiers or we're better served being on the field killing rather than being in this trial. I mean, we're taking kids, you know, they're they're in their late teens, early twenties, they're still kids, um, and putting them in unimaginable stress and unimaginable horror, and then we we 
you know, the higher powers or the, the morally right people get upset when they go too far. They don't know what, I mean, they know it was wrong. Of course they knew it was wrong, but they've been broken. And so how much is them to blame? It's just, it's just so difficult. It's so difficult to really pinpoint, you know, it's not like somebody here stateside during peacetime goes and, and does a horrific thing. It's, it's kids who have been destroyed by war doing these things. Yeah. It's a very tragic uh, and engaging story. It's time for Movie Rant. The basic training of Pavla Hummel, one of Rabe's plays from 1971, the first play in a, a collection called the Vietnam Trilogy, which is actually where young Al Pacino got his one of his starts, um, is about uh, the, the making of a psychopath. But basically, that's what you know, it, it's the making of this. He's not really a Meserve because Pablo Hummel's not not quite as competent, but that's what a lot of Rabe's plays are about. Is uh, And Rabe himself was a Vietnam vet. Um, and you, you could see that even in the scenes in this play that are maybe a little more theatrical or stagey, um, a, a lot of the dialogue is, I think. But that's what the theme of his kind of body of work, at least his Vietnam work, has been. It's been how this makes psychopaths, this, this system. Specifically the, the Vietnam system or the war in general? Or what he's, he's specifically talking about Vietnam. I would say like war in general. I, I think, I guess, I suppose war isn't a system. Um, war is an experience with systems attached to it. Uh, so that's what he's talking about as, as making psychopaths. Um, and you know other other things like Full Metal Jacket. I think has tried to do this a little bit. I, I honestly, it's I do not like this movie. I think I'm alone on that. Uh, I, you are alone. Yeah, it's once they leave basic training, the movie's unmemorable. I cannot. I've seen it more than once. I cannot remember what happens because there's just no life left in the movie after after the suicide. Um, but. Uh, I think this movie, and if if you're interested in like the basic training of Pablo Homo or of any other Rabe's plays, um, like Streamers is, is another one that, that touches on this. That's a consistent thing throughout his work. And you could see why he was drawn to this material. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's kind of topical. You know, you, we've, we've known about the atrocities in World War One, and then about the government-sponsored atrocities world war ii and not vietnam and all this and i'm sure in time there will be things going on about russian soldiers and and what's happening in in, in ukraine now you know it's it's just horrific the what happens to the young mind when they're put into these situations by these old men running the government I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, which is Margaret. Congratulations, Margaret. Thank you very much. Yes, you're welcome. Um, you can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts, on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios, and our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We are extremely grateful to all of those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. Let us know your response to this episode on Twitter, TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com, or give us a call at 201-467-8679. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. 
Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure and an honor to be involved. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. This was this was a lot of fun, even though it wasn't a fun movie. Um, but thanks for <laughs> thanks for the invite. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15, and also check out our sister podcast, Talking Pictures Trivia B Side. Join us next time as we continue to prep for Top Gun 2 when we discuss Nick's recommendation from 2009 in Glorious Bastards. Stay tuned for our first impression of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Next week, we'll be discussing Inglorious Bastards. Tom, how was your watch? I saw this movie, I think, in the theaters, and the ending had been spoiled for me. Which is fine. It, you know, it, it's uh, it's fine to have this movie spoiled. I watched it again, this time on my television, with a friend who had also watched it. And she had watched it in in a graduate class in conversation with Milton Sampson Agonistes, which which sounds bonkers if you know that 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 poem. Um, but uh I I really enjoyed this. I I'm not a Tarantino fan. I I don't like most of his movies, uh, especially Pulp Fiction. I'll, I'll say that. Um, but I like this, and I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think these are the two Tarantino films I I like. And watching this again, the campy scene chewy stuff is a, a tremendous amount of fun, and it really made me miss acting. The 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 um the way they used accents in it especially brad pitt's character that i love that accent and the way he articulates things it's very very theatrical and very enjoyable and it also has a sort of total film feel right it's about movies that save us from real history uh and so i had a good time i had a lovely time how about you ragnar how was your first watch yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I mean, that uh, Bongiorno that uh, Brad Pitt throws out is just every time I watch it's hilarious. It's my third time watching it. Uh, I feel that just like all his other movies, Tarantino films get better with you watches because you kind of get to enjoy his attention to detail and his craftsmanship more. And the tense scenes, like the opening scene, which I think is legendary and the basement scene the tension is still there i still feel the tension even though i know exactly what's going to happen so uh, i think it's an incredible film and um i'm very curious as to what you think kj i i enjoy tarantino movies i do i really like the tarantino movies but the first time i watched this one i must have slept through some because when i watched this time there were entire chapters i had forgotten uh, this movie did not capture me at all well i shouldn't say that the first scene's great um the basement scenes is is fun um and christoph waltz is such a joy to watch in this movie the, the whole time Every, when he's on the frame i'm in um but otherwise i don't think this this tarantino movies for me um but tom if we're pairing him with poems i don't know very many poems i certainly hadn't heard of um the much the poem you had mentioned um the only one that came to my mind is If by Rudyard Kipling. So if anybody wants to watch the movie and then read a poem, maybe If by Rudyard Kipling. Maybe you can find it online. Well, the Samson Agonistes is about Samson, right? So what does Samson do at the end of that Bible tale? 
Just tell us. Oh, he <laughs> brings the building down. He pulls the know. building down. Yeah, and in that poem, they change it to a theater. He's in a oh, theater, and he I, I had no idea everyone. there was a Samson in the Bible. How oh yeah, yeah. Samsonite. I was way off. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Nick? How was your watch? One of the reasons I do this podcast is to pick movies like this. I know I had seen it in the theater and enjoyed it. Probably saw it one more time after when it was on DVD and had not seen it in many, many years. So we were doing a war theme and it just came to mind that, you know what? I, I kind of want to give that a rewatch. So that's what I did. And I was pleasantly, I don't know, can you be re-surprised about a movie? I really enjoyed it. I, I forgot how much I enjoyed it in the past. I like the chaos in this film, the choppiness of how it feels to accomplish what they're trying to do and the missteps along the way, because war is chaos. So I, I really did enjoy it. And I, I'm looking forward to exploring this further with you guys uh, next week.